rongo aki au te tangi a te manu tui, 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 tui a. Tui ai runga, tui ai raro, tui ai roto, tui ai waho, tui a te moka tangata, ka rongo te pō, ka rongo te pō. Tui a te kāwai tangata, i takea mai, Hawaii ki nui, Hawaii ki roa, Hawaii ki pāmamao, ki te hono i wairoa, e roko whakairi ake ki runga, kia tīna, tīna. Haumie, huie, tai ki. Tuko mai kia peri, tuko mai kia tata, tuko mai ki te poho o tōku tipuna, ko tahu pōtiki, piki mai, kake mai, haere mai, tauti mai. Kia ora tātou, e te whare. My name is Eriwera Tārena, and it's really my honour te tuku i te reo o mihi, kia koutou e te iwi ko tau mai nei. I rongo no i te karanga o tēnei tō tātou kaherangi, Anne Sarman. So it's really my honour today on behalf of Hei Whakakanohi to be the face, the extension of the manaakitanga of Ngaitahu, our hapū Ngaituahuriri, and my sterling whānau as well, to extend our hospitality to Dame Anne Sarman and to welcome you all here today. Te tuatahi, kei konei, i runga noi te kaupapa o te pukapuka hall, ngā roimata a raki nui, rangi nui rane. And so just to welcome you to this session, the tears of rangi, or as we would say down here, raki. And also to acknowledge the sponsor of this session in terms of the Auckland University Press. And so rather than kind of introduce myself, I thought, well, one, it's a pleasure for our whānau to welcome Dame Anne Sarman here today with us and to acknowledge that her book is all about uh, um, connections uh, between those two cultures and, and really that ho. And uh, the reason why you have a beige young Ngaitahu man uh, introducing you here today is because we actually have a, a shared ho, a connection, and our whakapapa is intertwined. And so rather than talk about my background, I thought it would be nice to ask Dame Anne Sarman uh, to, to kind of explain uh, around how our whakapapa is connected, how our hau is connected, and, and really um, to talk about those interactions and, and those two worlds uh, um, merging in terms of her connections with my great-grandparents and my namesake, Eruera uh, Kafia Whakatani Sterling and my great-grandmother, uh, Media Manutai Sterling. So, i runga no i tērā, uh, um, te pātai ki ākoe um, e te kahurangi, um, really just to explain that, that how our shared whakapapa and to understand a bit around, well, how did that influence both your life uh, and those relationships, but also this book, uh, Tēnā Koe. Ah, Tēnā Koe, ngā bihi aroha ki a koe me te whānau hoki. Tēnā, tēnā rā koutou e ngā rangatira. Um, well looking at you and thinking of the old people, thinking of Eruera and our media, uh, takes me back to the time when I was, you know, just a teenager. And the way it sort of happened is I grew up in, on the coast, so I grew up in Gisborne and um, went to school there and I was a part of quite a big tribe. There's eight kids in our family. And so we had a, a world of our own. We, you know, we went, went to school, played together, went to the beach, um, studied, and then I got a scholarship to go to the States. I, I, I won an American field scholarship to go to America. And my mum, for reasons that we might explore, you know, because there's a whakapapa that goes back 
um, be beyond me that connect back to Ngāti Pro with my great-grandfather as well. And so my mum, for that reason, she, had, she was friendly with Lady Lorna Ngata and Peggy Kowa, or Peggy Fawasa, she then was. And she asked them if they would teach me some action songs so I could go to the States. And as a young field scholar, I was only 16 before I went. And, um, and so these two very elegant kind of duchesses, really, I mean, these amazing women, uh, took me in hand and they taught me a couple of action songs. And uh, I looked at them and I was just kind of in awe of them, really. Um, these... these and they, they were a bit amused, you know, because here was this young Pagia girl, um, friend of, a daughter of their friend, uh, but very kind. And, and they stayed that way for, for me for the rest of their lives, you know. They remained sort of a, a, a cloak around my shoulders as well, those two. <clears throat> so anyway, so off I went to the States, and while I was over there, um, I kind of realised, because I was sent out to go and talk to Rotary and Kiwanis and things like this and talk about my country, and, and then I would end up doing an action song. And then I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm talking about something I know, un I know nothing about. I don't understand this side of my country. I'd sort of had a wee glimpse of it from, <clears throat> from Peggy and, and from Lorna, uh, just a wee glimpse, and it was a very impressive one, but I didn't know anything about it. So I thought that when I came home, um, I'd start to learn Māori. And so I came back and came back home because it was six months before I could go to university. And I decided I would go to university to learn Māori, and that meant I would go to the anthropology department. But in the meantime, George Marsden, um, he was teaching Māori at Gisborne Boys High, and he, just, he started teaching me the real. And I absolutely loved it and thought, this is just fantastic. I was enchanted, really. And so I started to realise there was this whole side to my own country that, as a as a child growing up in New Zealand, I just didn't know anything about. So then I went to university, and that's when the relationship with your great-grandparents began, because um, I joined Māori Club, and I had a whole bunch of friends, really close friends, who ended up, you know, leading the... They ended up being in Ngātamatoa, helping to lead the Māori Renaissance uh, in later years. Um, and we were having a fantastic time just being young. It wasn't political in those years, particularly. So we were off, you know, watching the guys play football, doing our kapahaka, going to parties, studying. And I was going out with a guy, and his mother had been at Wellington Ladies College with Armedia. And she was German, and Armedia was Māori, and they both had a hard time at that school. And so they ran away together. They ran away from school. And so it was a, I forget what the anniversary was, it might have been a 50th wedding anniversary or something like that, it was a party. And there I was, I came because this guy was, I was going out with him, and Eduardo and Armedia were in the room. And uh, I don't know how, but I, you know, Armedia and I started talking. And we just sat down, and as soon as we sat down, you know, we just started, it was amazing, it was like this immediate connection. And... You know, we were laughing, and she started to tell me some of her amazing stories that ended up in her book. <clears throat> and um, I just really enjoyed being with her. And Edward was sitting there, you know, kind of much more reserved, as you would remember probably. Um, this, he had this kind of manner about him. Um, even in a party like that, he was just sort of sitting there and watching us two 
backing away, and Armelia invited me to go round to their, their house. So I did. And um, so I ended up in, um, in what's now called Armelia Street in Hearn Bay, um, in their house, and we sat down and we started again talking. And I don't know what it was. I mean, she was a, a lot older than me, but it didn't seem to, to matter. We just kind of struck up this instant friendship. And, yeah, so, and we loved a lot of the same things. She had this really great sense of humour, but she was also a wonderful storyteller. And I remember her looking up the Bible and, you know, sort of looking at the, my birthday date and sort of finding an affinity, saying that this was a link between us and so on. And so as I started going round to the house and... and um, just became a thing that, you know, I did fairly often. And <clears throat> Eduera started to teach me. And I never really have understood why he did that, but he did. He sort of, he realised, I think, that I, um, I just loved the language. I loved te reo. And I was very curious about tikanga Māori. And I was studying it a bit at varsity, but really I think my education began with him. And whereas Armelia and I would be laughing and talking about all kinds of things and, you know, love and life and flowers, which we both love growing and, I don't know, all sorts of things. Um, Eduera started to teach me. And I remember him rolling out a great big long sheet of, um, you know, of kind of paper on the floor and doing this extraordinary papa, showing how all the different waka link together, you know, trying to teach me some of the key linkages between different iwi how to navigate. And then we started going to Marae. And, you know, that was it, like 20 years later. <laughs> so it was, it was one of those relationships which you cannot, un I, I can't explain it at all. It was, um, it was one of the great joys of my life, you know, it lasted until they both died. And when, as I got married and had kids, you know, they ended up being godparents to our children. Uh, they named them. So our media Manutahi, our daughters, named after the old lady, and he, he named our two boys as well, Eduera. And it was a very close relationship, and it ended up with three books. <clears throat> and I, you know, and again, that was something that Eduera, uh, but our media too, they both had a lot of um, had a lot to do with the way my life worked as an author. Pinakwe. I think too, um, yeah, you're, uh, the tears of Rangi is so much around the connection of hope and, and to think about even with a Māori dung, you know, the extension of Ngāite's manaki tanga because we go, well, we don't want Ngāti proclaiming you all the time. Uh, um, <laughs> and to go recognise that that connection is also through our people down here and our sterling whānau. But just think, you know, you talk so much around two worlds and yes. that you've been able to cross mm. and that hope is also connected to mana. You know, your mana in Māoridom is through your own achievements, uh, through your own works, but then also the fact that you were really intimately connected to the hau of so many of our greats, where um, you, know, you were sort of a, a living kanohi of those ones that are now passed on. How has that impacted in your life in terms of your comfort to move between those worlds? Kind of with those yeah. ancestors... <clears throat> that you shared that hoe with on your shoulders? Yeah, it was an odd thing when, you know, when I was young, in my teenage years when I was um, with the old people first and <clears throat> studying at varsity and, and then 
when it came to do my master's, and I went off to a, uh, I was a student of Bruce Biggs, and he sent uh, Pete Sharples and I um, to study these two unrecorded Polynesian outlier languages. And that was a, a very sort of deep dive because they had had very, those people, they were outliers in the sense that they're Polynesian atolls in the middle of the Solomon Islands, and they're kind of back migrations from Polynesia. And these people didn't speak English, and they didn't speak pidgin, and they, they were cooking in the ground, they were doing love magic, they were doing, you know, they could only really speak um, Lua Nyu in the case of the people I was um, with. And in that, it was only about four months of field work, but um, it was this extraordinarily deep dive because I, I had to get by in the language, and I ended up sort of dreaming in it after just three months. It was a very deep experience. For, for Peter too, I think, he was working with another group of people, but for both of us that was formative. And then we, when we came back, and I, I wrote up the grammar of this language, and I thought, ah, oh, you know, like I was doing this grammar that was quasi-mathematical, and I had this extraordinary experience with these, these people, you know, it was a life where there was a big feast on Friday nights on the beach, and, um, you know, the, there was music with these big bamboo chanting. It was a very, very, it was like going back 100, 150 years here, um, you know, still making the, Umu and the Kono and, um, and so when I came back, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that anymore because writing that grammar, I'm communicating to probably about, it was published, but, you know, maybe 50 people in the world have read it. <clears throat> and as a way of representing that experience, it seemed just so, so impoverished. And I talked to Edwitter about what I would do for a PhD, and he said, well, Ani, if you want to learn about Te Māori, if you're really serious, the Marae is the university for you now. That's what he said. I remember so vividly. And he said, if you, if you want to do that, um, we'll, we'll take you. And that's what happened. I went to the States and did my papers for 18 months, came home, and Edwitter and our media, I became their driver. Had a little blue V-dub. You know, Edwitter or our media would ring up and say, oh, there's a hui on at wherever it was, you know, Marapopa. There's all sorts of places that we went to, all over the North Island, mainly, actually, just about all. And, and I'd hop in the car and we'd drive to, you know, this place that otherwise I never would even know existed, probably, and sleep in the, in the whare. And on the way, Eruera would chant, and, you know, you could see how he was navigating Whakapapa because he would think about the hui we were going to, how he was linked up with those people, uh, what the... Kopapa was the take for the hui, and then he'd be sort of talking that through in the car, and so, and then our media would start telling stories, you know, we'd sing, and it was, it was a, it was like a travelling university in, in that little blue V dub. So, so I had, you know, two years of that very intense time, and um, and Edward, I think. Uh, but Nanny as well, our media, with her stories, you know, their stories about, they were different, as you can tell from the two books, they were really different books. And hers was a personal, really, in many ways, but it was also about the life she had lived on the coast and what happened to their son, George, and the heartbreak of that and why they came to, to Auckland and what Auckland was like for an early migrant from a Māori community. And, but, you know, very heartfelt. And so we would laugh and we 
cry sometimes. And I had my little daughter sitting on my lap when we did that book. Um, so the hoe, you know, the whole thing about the hoe, you know, with the mingling of breath and the mingling of lives. And I, I sort of, although I'm trained as an anthropologist, it's never been like that for me. It's been, I've learned as much through my skin as I have through reading or, you know, recording or... It's just being with people and seeing how the world is um, for them um, and just having those very intimate times. When you're talking to someone for a year about their life and just going over there week after week and sitting down for a day, you know, and just listening and crying and talking and marvelling at the stories that you're hearing, it's, it's a very intimate thing to do. And, and in that way, your lives become mingled, I think. Mm. And that's sort of what happened. And, um, and it was I, you know, that huge gesture of trust to let your life be filtered through somebody else's you know, pen, if you like. But um, in each case, I read the book to them uh, before to make sure they were happy with it before we put it out, yeah. So I those, those that, early um, books... You didn't add in that Nania Media was kind of tone deaf and a terrible singer. Is... <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, and that, uh, our media loved singing, actually, but she sang and sang quite loud because she was a bit deaf, but she was also tone deaf, and so it was always flat, you know, so... It's <laughs> our the, secret. Yeah, our secret. <laughs> yeah, it was our secret. But, uh, yes, and just being with those two um, on Marae and hearing our media sort of, you know, prodding Eduardo what he might say and when he's in the, in the full flight of the Whaikōrero and, and being amongst all the nannies up on the, up on the, paipais, uh, up on the uh, porch of the house eating black balls and just all that kind of... Yeah, so this book, um, Tears of Rangi, it's in a way what happened there is that, um, you know, having written about tikanga Māori and especially through the eyes of, um, first of all, around marae with hui, and that, that was the book that we wrote together, I would say, because I don't think I could have gone to all those marae without having... Uh, they were like a cloak around my shoulders. You know, not many Pākehā were going to marae in those years, and certainly not to some of these places. And then the two books about Amiria uh, first and then Eruera. And then um, what happened then was, um, you know, they both... I went to Cambridge for a year, and Eruera wrote me the most beautiful letters while I was there, actually. Um, and we had just finished his book before I left. And so it went through the press while I was in Cambridge. And it was published while I was still away. And when I came back, um, he, was, he was really, you know, he had decided very deliberately to write a book. And um, he was thrilled to have done it. Because he wasn't, I think he knew he wasn't well. And... And then there was that whole thing of them when they both died. And, you know, that was like, we talked about this. It was heartbreaking because, um, I don't know, I'm very close to my own family, but I was close to them in another way. And, and they really did shape my life. It wasn't just my work. Um, they were a very powerful presence in our, in our family as well. And, and so when they both died, I was kind of lost for a while and I didn't really know what, what to do next. And then I thought, well, after being in Cambridge 
and seeing what that world was like, that world of knowledge, um, and that historical trajectory that I was part of, um, and seeing things about it that were beautiful and things about it that were um, almost frightening sometimes, thinking about it from the other side, from the Māori side of it. Um, and so, you know, then I started looking at how those encounter, how those two worlds, you know, it was a very personal thing to start off with, with the old people going out to the marae, seeing this whole world unfold, the intricacy of it, all the different tribal stories and different communities, just how different each place was that we went to, and uh, how complicated it was and deep and a life, lifelong study, and then you're still only starting. <clears throat> and um, so seeing that world and then seeing it through the eyes of the old people in a very intimate way and then thinking about, well, how did all that start? And that's how I started doing those books on encounters. That's how all that began. And I guess, you know, this book is a combination of, it brings all of that together. I, I, that's what I tried to do in a way. Before, you know, we talked before about my great-grandfather's Tanginga. I was like seven years old. Yes. But the books are a way, like, you know, you'd say a Māori, he matapihi ki te like they're a window. And so much of our written history is around conflict mm. or sort of historical figures. And, you know, the, they lack the richness, the human parts of, of you know, whether it's Kendall or Hungihika or Busby, what were they like? What was their character? And how were their relationships with others defined, both by their times, but by who they were? And um, in terms of this, what is it like engaging with the descendants of those characters, whether they be Pākehā or Māori, and how do they engage with these books? Mm. Um, because in many ways, you know, our experiences for many of our, for my generation down, uh, relationships and our hoe and our understanding of who our ancestors were has been defined by very rich storytelling yeah, from books and the odd conversation around how a nanny couldn't sing very well. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I think, I think the thing, Edwira was exactly right when he said that Marae is the university for you now because the beauty of that couple of years on the road was that I heard a lot of the stories being told in meeting houses late at night, you know, when I was kind of being prodded awake, the old man would give me a nudge because someone was telling some amazing story or singing some very special waiata or, and that would sometimes go on most of the night. And we, we traveled to lots of different areas of the country because Edwira was a great orator and a, a expert in whakapapa and he had his networks were right across the country. And so when we went out to Marae together, you know, you're in the position of being able to lie beside these, you know, you know Eruera and our media, two, uh, you know, iconic figures, really. I mean, Eruera in that time, when we go on to a marae, there'll be people like Henare Tufangai, so James Henare. Um, Eruera was in that kind of company of people that really linked directly with the Wananga tradition, the old ways of learning. And, and so the storytelling that sort of tumbled out and was kind of coming from the walls almost, you know, sinking into you like that. Um, it's different from learning from books. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and I think when I wrote this book, um, 
It's probably because of that long relationship with the old people that I was so curious about the relationships that formed people like um, both Thomas Kendall and Hongi Hika. You know, what happened to those as they, you know, what happened when they went to England together? Mm. What happened when Hongi went and met King George in Carlton House? Um, you know, how did that then translate back? Because I'd just been, when I, before I wrote that, I participated in the treaty hearings up north about the treaty. And Erim Henare had stood up and talked about Hongi meeting King George. And he said, rangatira ki te rangatira, ariki ki te ariki rai ki te rai. You know, they met as equals. Uh, you know, the, King George had greeted Hongi as King Hongi. And that they that expectation came home, that when the treaty was signed, they would relate to each other as equals, the British Crown and the Rangatira. And, and so that, that human element, though, and trying to understand someone like Kendall in all his complexity and his torments and, um, you know, his marriage and, you know, being with Terako, the Tohunga, but then having an affair with his daughter and what, what relationship was that exactly? What, you know, how did that work? And being chucked out of the mission. Um, and Hongi Hika, having been to Britain, decided that his own tikanga were superior, really, I think. Better for him and his people. And coming home and just the way his life played out from that time on. And I don't think I would have been curious in that way about those relationships unless I'd had relationships um, that were kind of world-forming world shifting as well. And you think too that, you know, the, the idea of the, the savage and the civilised as counterpoints when the reality of it, they were both getting up to mischief <laughs> like <laughs> yes, human together. Yes. I know, and that was the thing. I mean, you could tell that when Hongi went to Britain and, uh, you know, Marsden and the other missionaries, uh, Marsden in particular, they, I think they played quite a lot on their relationship with King George and said about fighting, well, King George would not approve and then telling them to give up their multiple wives. The rangatira had often, you know, had a number of wives and saying, well, you can only have one and, you know, this is absolutely sinful and bad. And then Hungi goes to meet up with King George um, and when he's staying in Cambridge, uh, he stayed in Cambridge, he mixed with high society in Cambridge. He was working with one of the great professors there um, to write a grammar and vocabulary of Māori. And... Um, seeing Cambridge in all its splendour with the dons with their scarlet gowns, you know, must have looked like a wānanga, I think, of a kind. And then um, hearing from his host there, who was the mayor, of, had been the mayor of Cambridge, but also commanded the Cambridge volunteers in the Napoleonic Wars. And they ended up talking a lot about fighting because uh, Hongi Ika was a fighting, uh, he was a, a toa. And, and, you know, um, he got the idea of the wedge-shaped formation that they used in the Napoleonic battles from Sir John Mortlock, I think, mm. um, and, and brought it home. And so he realised at that time, and of course King George had been the Prince Regent, and, and he was married to Queen Charlotte, and they, he was trying to divorce her at the time that Hungi was there. And she'd had an affair with somebody in, in Italian, and King George had multiple mistresses. And you can just imagine Hungi sitting there thinking, I mean... These guys are fighting the whole time, you know. The king is having affairs, you know. He's trying to divorce his wife. He, in fact, said to King George, well, you know, I know you're having a lot of trouble with your wife, but I have no trouble with my three at home, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> they, so, 
So, so you can just sort of see that this whole primitive savage thing, which we still hear on talkback. I mean, you hear people talking all the time about how Māori used to kill each other and so that lucky Captain Cook turned up, as though in Cook's time they weren't fighting. I mean, what a load of... If you don't you know, know any British or European history, you can say stuff like that. But if you happen to know something about your own ancestors, it's probably a bit better to keep your lips zipped. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to kind of open up for questions soon. Yeah. Um, so if you've got any ideas, sort of get yourself prepped, and I think we're going to have some roving microphones. Um, but just you know, flipping it, you know, in the later part of the book in terms of the future. Yes. And you're thinking, you know, you're seeing so much, in particular in America, around you know, the isolation of cultures, and really you're talking a lot more around converging cultures, and to think about, well, the creative potential of that to go that when we, we rub up against each other and we start to converge and think around what's shared, then we're also bringing those um, different cultural worldviews uh, um, that forces us to dig deeper and understand each other better and talk through things and connecting that with problem solving to go, well, ha ha what is the creative potential around that convergence of culture in terms of tackling big, meaty, complicated global issues like climate change or... Yeah. Just wondered if you could sort of talk a bit more about that and what you see as the potential uh, around that in terms of how those cultures come together for the future and you kind of your vision for your mokopuna as well. Well, I mean, in a, again, in a way that goes back to um, the relationship with the old people. And, and again, I think with our media, when we did our book together, that was... That was, a, you know, a joyous romp, well, heartbreaking at times too when we were talking about things that had happened that was really sad in her life. But it was, um, you know, kind of a, an exploration of, of a life and a world um, and it was a joyful experience working on that book with her. Um, with um, with Eruera, it was, it was much more purposeful in the sense that, you know, he had very clear ideas about the future of the country. He was active on that front. He had known Apirandangata extremely well. He was mentored by him. Um, he, he thought about big issues. He thought, you know, he was very involved. He was a kind of kaumātua for Ngā Tamatoa. Uh, he took them to Rokōkore. They painted the marae there for, you know, one time. Uh, he defended Hetaua in the mm. court when the young engineering students that had been performing a mock haka got roughed up by some of... Um, the students, Māori students at the University of Auckland, my own university, Eruera went to court to try and explain to the judge why the haka that they'd performing, been performing drunk with all sorts of stuff written on their bodies, you know, why that was so offensive and why it was, why, you know, and they'd been asked and asked and asked to stop doing it and they just wouldn't stop. And so he defended them in court. So he was thinking about the big issues of the day all the time, about land, about, and he was passionate about this thing of trying to, cause, because he also thought about his sterling whakapapa, you know, his Scottish side. I always remember that when Ber Bernard Ferguson was our Governor General, he and Edward were good friends. They got on really well. And it was that Scottish thing. And, and when Bernard Ferguson was being farewelled from um, up at, up at uh, Bastion Point, up in the Marae there, Ngāti Whaitua, and there was a big tent and Bernard Ferguson stood up and he did a tauparapara from Te Whanau Apanui that John Waititi had taught him. And 
And Eduera was listening to this, and it was a whānau up in Nui Pau, and, um, and he, he'd bought a tartan umbrella. <laughs> so he hopped up and he said, Joe Scotsman, you have stolen my pau. And then he went, and he started performing, a chieftain to the highlands bound, cries boatman. <laughs> Do not, he was dancing around, doing it like a tauparapara. It was really, really funny. And, um, but he cherished that side. You know, he, he wasn't ashamed or he had no problem um, binding all of his whakapapa together. Mm. You know, he, was, he, he drew a lot from that Scottish heritage as well as, you know, he was very, he didn't have, you know, identity crises about any of that. And he wanted that for his, he wanted that for the future generation as well. He wanted them to be able to live and stand in the world uh, proud in all of their whakapapa. So he used to talk about the thousand hairs on your head, you know, and learn the lines of your ancestors. And when you can do that, you can stand in the, in the, meet, in the gatherings of the people and speak. And so he was very passionate about that and, and he wanted uh, tikanga Māori to be recognised and respected in the reo. And, and the, you know, and I think he worked with me in part, the sort of things that we ended up doing together. It was a way of speaking out, amplifying the things that he really wanted to share and to get people to think about. And in this book, um, you know, in a way I was still doing that. Um, that conversation really hasn't stopped for me. Um, mm. I think that, you know, I see so much hurt and harm uh, come out of sheer ignorance, and, and it's willful ignorance sometimes. People that um, we talked a little in the, in, in the meeting that we had last night about the 125th anniversary of women, or I ended up talking a little bit about, about Don Brash and others, and saying not, not as individuals, but as a kind of exemplar of a kind of conversation that can happen in our country, where people who know absolutely nothing about te ao Māori. You know, they've never studied the reo, they, they've never learned to speak it, they, don't, they couldn't sing a waiata in it. You know, they have no idea what that world is about and, and how rich and how complex and how deep it is. And yet they will dismiss it. You know, they'll stand up and say, I don't want to hear the reo. You know, I, I don't like hearing someone else talk it on radio. Um, it's what use is it? And I, I just sit there and think, well, if you've never tried if you've never, you know, delved into it, if you've never tried to, you know, understand it, you're not in a position to judge. You know nothing about it, you know. And, and so when I hear Don Brash, I think, well, if I stood up and started prosing on about high finance and how to run the Reserve Bank, you know, <laughs> nobody would listen to me, you know. They would just think I was a... A total fool, and yet, um, and yet, people will. And it's not a, not to make a personal comment about an individual, really. It's a kind of conversation that happens, but it's heartbreaking because I also had the conversations where I'm with my students, and I, you know, I've been teaching on Māori studies now for you know a lifetime, and year after year, I have students that come into my office. We're talking about an assignment they're doing, which is usually exploring their own whakapapa, their own background. And then they'll start talking about things in their own lives. You know, after a while they start talking. And this idea that somehow the savage idea or that te reo is like an infantile language or that um, tikanga Māori has nothing to offer our thoughts about how to interact with the environment uh, or in the case of Bob Brocky, ridiculous to think that it has anything to contribute to the scientific project. You know, mm. 
These are people that know what they know about these subjects could dance on the head of a pin. And, and yet they will speak about them with complete authority as though they, and yet if you're a scientist, to utter with complete authority about something about which you know nothing is like inimical to the scientific project. So you basically can't defend the scientific project by flouting its most basic principles. You can't, but they do it, and why? And so, and so um, the book is, is not really, tried not to be um, didactic or anything. What I'm trying to do is to let people explore things. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an exploration, and in the end of the book, um, the last chapters, it's talking about freshwater, the outer debates about uh, freshwater, the Whanganui River, ways in which we could expand our ways of thinking about living with waterways um, in ways that might be, you know, restore our rivers, restore our, our springs and aquifers, um, enable us to understand that these are living systems on which we rely and to pollute and extract them to the point of depletion and exhaustion is just... And again, a, a folly born out of arrogance and to some extent ignorance. And drawing on Māori philosophy to come up with alternative ways of thinking. And the same thing with, um, you know, thinking about land, thinking about the ocean, um, and also thinking about the lives of people. So there's quite a lot about the relations between men and women and child rearing. And, and so it's in a way a conversation that's carried on from those times when I, I think I learned for myself that the things I'd thought as a young woman about the things I thought I knew, which was virtually nothing, um, you know, I had no idea, absolutely no idea. And it wasn't until I was taken onto Morai and I started learning the real and I started being taught that I began to realise this is, you know, what a, what a set of riches, you know, what a gift to have that privilege of walking around in that world and not learning about it, to, you know, it's not, to, not as an object, but as a, a lesson for life as well, learning from it, not just about it, yeah. Nice, I think we might um, open up for questions. Are there any, do we, just trying to see where the roving microphones are, if you could raise your hand. Oh, there we go. So just, are there any questions from the audience? Um, in the middle here. And maybe if there's anyone else that would like to ask a question, you might want to raise your hand as well and we can start moving a microphone towards you. Hi, I've read your book and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, just a question, you... Conflict of ontologies, I can imagine that stirs up a, an academic hornet's nest in some yeah. circles. So I wonder why you... I understand where you're coming from and I, I endorse it, but um, it would have caused yourself a lot less trouble uh, framing it as a conflict of world views. Could you elucidate on that for me, please? Yeah, well, the difference between looking at it as a conflict of world views is it assumes that there's the same world for everybody and we just look at it differently. Um, and so that reality is reality and, um, you know, we have different vantage points, we look at it slightly differently. I, um, I'm interested in the, in the proposition that it's possible that um, you know, reality is, the world has, 
as, as human beings, we understand just a fraction of the complexity that surrounds us. Uh, I think, you know, as somebody that's served, for example, on the Council of the um, Royal Society and had the privilege of sitting in and reading um, uh, proposals from scientists from all kinds of fields and proposals from, for offering people medals and so on, covering all the disciplines. And you just realise how, how intricate and how extraordinarily complex um, and multidimensional and multiscalar uh, any view of reality has to be and how limited our views are, are of it. And the thing that I find fascinating about tikanga Māori and Māori ways of whakapapa as a framework, for instance, is it really is, a, it, it, it's not like gene genealogy exactly. It's, um, it's these cosmic networks. It's, it's uh, like, much more like complex systems or com complexity theory, mm -hmm. where what you've got is all these different living systems interacting in extraordinarily complex ways, and the trick is to try and negotiate relationships which... Um, try and achieve some kind of fragile, fragile equilibrium. And so in relation to rivers, for example, you know, when in Whanganui they say, I'm the river and the river is me. I'm the river, the river is me. If the river's dying, so am I. And that sounds like a poetic statement, but actually, you know, in Havelock North, for example, you know, if we pollute our waterways, uh, we are cutting off the lifeblood of the land. We're, we can't really survive without water, and without water that's that's um, healthy and 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 pure in, in some ways. And so, being able to think easily in terms of these complex networks is a gift. It's it's great to be able to think like that about a river, uh, for example. And so, I've been running a project with a whole team of other scientists, including geomorphologists and you know people who are interested in freshwater ecology and ecologists that look at the total system. And what we've been trying to do is to take Humpty Dumpty of the sciences and put them back together again. Because in, what I realised in that project is that the geomorphologists have a view of a river, the microbiologists have a view, the freshwater ecologists have a view, uh, the hydrologists have a view, and the marine ecologists have a view when it, become, it reaches the ocean. And all of these disciplines have insights, but they don't link. They don't talk to each other very easily. And to understand if you want to restore a river to health, how to do that. And also you need the people because they're part of the system too. And the natural sciences have been split off from the social sciences. So that fragmentation is a real problem in the sciences, but in Māori philosophy it's really easy to get past it because you just don't think like that. So this, it's these kinds of... Um, uh, so the question about ontology and is it, are these different just worldviews, or is it possible that reality configures itself in different ways and experience can be a different thing? And, and I explored that in the book. Uh, I tried to explore that through the experience of Thomas Kendall. I was curious to know what happened in those very early years before we built, if you like, bridges of understanding of intelligibility between each other, uh, because it was so raw. You know, Kendall was trying to live in a world where there was almost none of that, you know, you, no scaffolding. And, and it just about blew him apart. And Hungi the same way, you know, they, they ended up having to make choices just to survive. And 
the way in which the body worked in those times, you know, the understanding of the human body. Um, it's closer in many ways to the way the biological sciences are going now, you know, with regarding the human being as a symbiote. It's, it's, it's sort of closer to those kinds of visions than some of the more mechanical views of the body. So that's what I'm interested in. It's, it's not um, to say, here's a world, here's a world. That's a, that's a modernist view. Te ao Māori, and so I'm really translating from Māori when I talk about worlds. Te ao Māori, te ao Pākehā. But they, they, they interlink and they, they interlock and they interrelate. They're permeable. It's, it's not like here's a world, there's a world, never the twain shall meet. That's one view of biculturalism. But it's, it's one that comes out of modernism, I think. Um, it's not really... With whakapapa, relationships can be forged. You can learn. You can create new thoughts. And that's what I love about it. It's like if you delve into tikanga Māori in a deep way and explore some of and then you do the same with the scientific tradition, you can have new thoughts. You can see new patterns. You can understand things that before were unintelligible, perhaps. And that's what we need to do with these complex challenges like climate change. They're all to do with these, you know, interchanges, extraordinarily complex interchanges between living systems. And we, our models don't handle that well at the moment. I think, too, to go, you know, when you deal with that complexity, it's much easier to pull back from that and just fall back into your own cave or silo or discipline as opposed to try to interpret and understand the complexity of that system. And especially with whakapapa, where it connects both tangible and intangible, where some of the most interesting whakapapa in our region is for winds. Yes. People connect to natural phenomena that you can't touch. Yes, well, somebody was asking me, you know, sort of saying, well, um, you know, is Māori more or less coming at me from the view that Māori knowledge was kind of mythological and superstitious and stuff like that. And I was saying, it's, actually, it's really empirical. You know, you think about navigation, talking about winds. Um, I'm really interested in the whole legacy of um, voyaging and exploration and how that happened. How did the ancestors of Māori, at the time the Egyptians were building the pyramids, you know, sort of set off and start innovating a maritime technology that included, you know, these very fast, flexible craft, navigating by the stars, feeling the currents. I mean, the research that's coming out around the, inter the, um, the empirical testing and the detection of pattern in the ocean, but also the winds and the atmosphere that is part of a navigator's um, toolbox, if you like, for getting from A to B, which is the most empirical test you can imagine, you know, if you, if you fail in navigation, you don't hit the island and you drown. So it's, it's just like the, it's a very empirical test. But the, the tradition and, and the knowledge system that evolved out of that is, I mean, we're learning more and more about it. There's a new book out called The Pathway of the Birds, which is a survey of what the scientists um, and others, including navigators, are learning about that legacy. And it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And it raises questions, new questions. Uh, that's the other thing, you know. New things to ask about the ocean and the interaction between the ocean and the, and the atmosphere and the winds, for example. And um, I'm working with quite a few scientists who find this really exciting. You know, we've just done a paper on, on rivers and geomorphology. You know, the rights of the river, what would that mean? And it's, it's a very 
you know, it's a very interesting um, paper that's been published internationally and, and the lead geomorphologist on it, so a world-leading um, river scientist. So these people are finding, it's taking these different framings of the world and getting them to engage with each other and seeing what new thoughts you can generate, what new patterns you can begin to discover. And you won't do that if you don't respect them. Creative potential. Yeah, well, that's it, you know. And in a country like this, you know, what we can do with it socially as well. Mm. Uh, just looking at our time, so we've got time for a couple more questions here. Pateano, is there another question? Thanks. Um, my question's kind of different, so it's more from a writer's perspective. Um, when you're coming into your ideation of a, of a book, what, what kind of things are you thinking about? I know that our media and Eduida had indicated that they wanted to work on this with you, but in some of your other works, I mean, what, what was your premise for thinking Tears of Rangi is going to happen and it's going to be like this? I know you discussed it a little bit already, but I'm interested from a from a writer's perspective, how does that come into being for you? Hmm. Well, I think Tears of Rangi happened because, um, well, partly because I'd moved a lot into the environmental space. Um, I'd become very concerned. We've got a big project that is happening at home in Gisborne, um, Waikiriru, our eco-sanctuary. My husband and I and a whole lot of others have been working on a big restoration project for the last 20 years. And um, from, from that, you start learning from the landscape. You know, you, the landscape has so much to teach of you, attend to it very closely for a long period. And I could see what was happening to the river that runs, you know, past the eco-sanctuary, looking at what happened to the streams as we allowed the bush to come back and shade them, um, seeing the birds start to return and... Uh, native orchids pop up out of the ground and kedidu starting to, you know, show up in large numbers and flock. Um, and when you are involved in those kinds of things, um, and because I'm, you know, a scholar, I also became very interested in, in the scientific discussions about those processes and ended up talking to lots of scientists and uh, ecologists and working with them in different projects. And... I suppose with Tears of Rangi, the, the philosophical question was, it really did arise out of the same question I, in a way that Eruera addressed with me early on, was, um, you know, the Marazi University from you now, Ani, he said, you know. So he was saying, if you really want to understand Tikanga Māori, you need to come into its heartland, you need to sit and listen, because I didn't talk hardly at all. Um, I listened, though, and I soaked it up for... A long period, and and you need to open yourself up to the to the experience of that kind of world, and then out of that um, things will will tumble in their own time, and it's been like that for me. It's not really a process of saying I'm going to do this book now. It tends to be uh, part of a, it. It's my writing life is not really separate from my my family and private life, um, so. With Tears of Rangi, a lot of that's about being involved in the treaty discussions, um, 
things on the coast. Um, at home, you can see there's a whole section there which is really thinking my way through what might happen next year in the 250th anniversary, going back to those first encounters, thinking about, about that again. And, but asking these deep questions this time, trying to ask, you know, what's it been like when these different ways of being have come together? What have been the clashes? What have been the collisions? What have been the points of convergence? What have been the times when we've been creative? Which is probably more often than we sometimes think. Um, and then what's the potential for that for our future? Thinking about my children and my grandchildren because I think about them a lot. What kind of world are they going to inherit? Is it going to be one of hope and, and one of you know, joy and a degree of security and exploration and wonder? Or is it going to be an apocalypse? And not wanting it to be an apocalypse, basically, and wanting them to have hope and joy. And so that book, Tears of Rungi, is an attempt to kind of round off, in many ways, things I've been thinking about for a lifetime. And... Um, and to just indicate some possibilities. It's not telling people what to do, but it says we could look at this, you know. We could, we could look, for example, at rivers and waterways as living systems. And we could do like we've done with the Whanganui River and acknowledge that they had their own rights to, be, to flourish. And that if we did that, we would flourish, we could flourish with them. And how could we make that happen? And how could we make it work in reality? And so thinking about governance, thinking about restoration projects, thinking about catchment management, but in a new kind of way that brings Māori philosophy right into the heart of it. And we're trying it out on the ground as well. It's not just in the book. And some of you probably know that we also um, got involved, and Eduardo and I were both involved in the documentary too, um, Artifact, um, with Māori TV, and we were exploring that in another way on, on screen with all sorts of people. And so it's all about looking for you know, glorious futures, um, wanting that kind of a world for, our, for my mokos, uh, my mokos, and seeing what we can do together. And I think we can do a lot. I think we're a lucky country in many ways. We're small, we're intimate. You know, we have this legacy. Uh, we have these legacies from Europe, but also from, from the Pacific. And if we work with them creatively, I think we could, we could have a... And we're trying in many ways already, but we could do a lot more. I think we're starting to wind up our, our session. Um, Engari, kamahi kakwe te kahurangi. Um, Kei te dollars, yei. Nō te matapihi ki te ao o tu a uri uri. Um, just to acknowledge that you know, your works create that window for descendants to gain a, uh, an insight into the minds and character of their ancestors, both Māori and Pākehā, but also for other cultures, you know, so that we can all gain an insight into who were those people in those uh, early relationships where they shared ho, not just the historical deeds, but, you know, the human parts, the rich parts. And connecting that with innovation, and to go, well, to innovate, we have to step outside of our comfort zones uh, where we feel comfortable and really starting to shift the conversation, not just around uh, our relationships in the past, but really starting to think around, well, what's the future that we're going to co-inhabit? So how about we start to co-create that? And I think the creative potential, not just around uh, um, yeah, the interesting part of where those two worlds meet. 
and sometimes the friction, but also the creative potential in that space where they overlap. And, you know, we could end by thinking about, because Eriwera always used to use this tauparapara, uh, you know, whakarongo, you know, whakarongo ki tangi a te manu e karanga nei, tui, 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 tui So, you know, listen, listen to the cry of the bird calling bind, join, be one, bind above, bind below, bind within, bind without, tie the knot of humankind, you know. The night hears, the night hears, bind the lines of people coming down from long Hawaii. Great Hawaii, from Hawaii far away, bind to the dawn, to the dusk, to the daylight, bind to the world of light. And it's this kind of vision of bringing things together and creating something glorious. And um, I think we should leave the last word with him. <laughs> Thank you.